It is a truism these days among social scientists that modern life is characterized by a profound sense of alienation. You may not think of that. Uh, you, you may not be thinking that consciously. But social scientists tell us that basically that's what we experience, whether we think about it or not. We live in cities in which we no longer know our neighbors, even though we live right cheek to jowl. We, we spend most of our days at work with people that, that we actually never see outside of work. And our work itself so often has very little connection to what we think of as most important about our own lives as individuals. In the public sphere of our lives, in work and, and in commerce, most of us are just cogs in a machine over which we have very little control. And so what do we do? How do we, how do we respond to that? Well, we retreat to, to private life, to the, to the private sphere, the world of, of family and friends, of, of church and clubs and interest groups. And yet even there, the sense of alienation persists. Our private lives, I, I'm sure this is not going to come as any surprise to you, our private lives are also incredibly fragmented. Our church friends don't know our neighborhood school friends who don't know our old college friends and none of them know the new friends I made last week at the gym. In fact, all of those private friendships are very much sort of circumscribed in their own compartments, their own little worlds where those, those friendships Live and, and actually, and I heard it said right over here, mumbled, the only thing that really kind of brings it all together in my experience is my Facebook feed. Because they're all my friends on Facebook. But that just kind of further accentuates my whole experience, my whole sense of fragmentation and alienation from my very own life. It's enough to make you want to drop out and, and join a commune, you know, a, a kibbutz maybe in Israel, um, where, where life is simple and, and you, you know everybody and everybody knows you and your work and, and your home life and all. It's, all. it's all just one. And in fact, many people did that in the 60s and 70s here in America, particularly out west. And, and you might say, actually, that, that the postmodern hipster culture of Portland is just an updated version of that commune life, only now you don't have to move to central Oregon to join your commune of choice, because we have an app for it. We do. We've got, we've got an app for that. You know, whether, whether, it's, whether it's Yelp or Goodreads or Pinterest or Tumblr, we try to overcome our sense of disconnection by creating these, these virtual communities of common interests, typically common commercial interests. And so alone in front of our glowing screens with our community out there in the ether, we wonder why the sense of alienation persists. How do we escape this? How do we escape this experience of modern life, fragmented, alienated, disconnected? Well, it's not that new. Over, over 100, nearly 150 years ago, uh, Karl, Karl Marx was describing 
this kind of alienation that, that the modern man experienced because of the Industrial Revolution, much less the technological revolution that we've experienced. The answer of Marxism in, in dealing with the, the fragmentation of our lives, uh, they, well, they, they look for an answer in, in economics, in what would eventually become the Soviet collective, in which everything was held in common. The private basically disappeared and everything simply became public. Of course, the West went a different way. The West has looked very much to technology, the creation of new communities, even as the old communities have been dissolved by the acids of modern life. New communities get created through 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 technology based on personal preference, based on style. Of course, what, what both of these solutions have in mind, what both of these solutions are really after is the experience of utopia, the experience of, of connection with one another and our world in which the fragmentation and the alienation is gone. All of this through changing, reorganizing our, our circumstances, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to the world around us. This winter, we are considering the liberation theology of the book of Exodus. And the passage that we come to this morning is actually a, a classic des- description of, of alienation, as Karl Marx described. But what we find when we look at what the Bible has to say about that alienation is that the problem which all of us experience, even if we weren't slaves in Egypt, all, all of us experience in one degree or another, the problem isn't finally solved by how we reorient ourselves to one another, whether we think about that economically or socially. The the, the problem is solved by how we orient ourselves to God. Because it is with God that we are fundamentally alienated and to whom we need to be fundamentally restored. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's found on page 93. Page 93. We're going to be considering most of chapters 5 and 6. And I'll, I'll read it as we go along, at least most of it. But if I could sum up in advance the message of Exodus chapters 5 and 6, this would be the summary. If you're taking notes, you'll, you'll want to write this down because this will guide you through the rest of the sermon. Here's what chapter 5 and 6 of the book of Exodus are about. It's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But don't be discouraged because it's going to get better. And you're not going to believe how. Don't be discouraged because it's going to get better. And you're not going to believe how. All right. That's that's where we're going. So first, let's let's just unpack that summary. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's the message of the first part of chapter five. Look with me in verse one. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. 
Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord, our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and foremen in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out. Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the foremen went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. The Israelite foremen appointed by Pharaoh's slave drivers were beaten and were asked, why didn't you meet your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite foremen went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told make bricks. Your servants are being beaten. The fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are. Lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. All right, having accepted his assignment, albeit reluctantly, as we saw at the end of of last week, Moses makes his first attempt at at doing what God told him to do, which was to deliver the people of Israel from, from bondage, from slavery. And I think what we'd have to say at this point is that Moses is a spectacular failure. As a deliverer, things go from bad, because slavery is bad, to worse. The slavery gets a lot worse. Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go. And Pharaoh's reply, who's the Lord? And why should I obey him? Literally, why should I listen to the sound of his voice? Moses tries again in verse 3, and it gets worse. Pharaoh accuses them, as we just read, of being lazy, decides to make the Israelites work harder so they don't have time to think about religion and festivals and their private lives. Now, here is, is where Marxism and, honestly, traditional liberation theology see alienation. And, and in one sense, they're right to see it. Pharaoh has reduced the Israelites to cogs in a machine. He's dehumanized them as slaves, and now he decides the machine just needs to run faster. But there's so much more going on in this passage than than mere economic alienation. What's really at stake is Pharaoh's alienation from God. And the text highlights that for us in several ways, and I think Pharaoh knows it. Pharaoh, of course, knows many so-called gods that the Egyptian pantheon was full of gods. Everywhere he turned, there was a God that he knew about. But he doesn't know the Lord. Only it's not just that he doesn't know him. 
it's that he has no intention, no desire to listen to his words. And what I want you to hear again, as we, as we looked at a few weeks ago, what I want you to hear again in that is the serpent's hiss. Right? In Genesis chapter 3, what did, what did Satan say through the serpent? Did God really say? Right? He questions God's words. Now, through Pharaoh, the serpent has grown even bolder. He's basically saying, I, I don't care what he said. I'm not listening. And, and in verse 10, that, that defiance actually becomes quite explicit. The, the I'm not listening actually turns into, into mockery. Using the exact same phrase, of Moses from verse 1, Pharaoh speaks as if he is God. He has his, his foreman declare that he speaks just like God speaks. This is what Pharaoh says. I don't, I don't really care what God says. All that matters is what I say. Now, friends, this is the consistent response of the world to God and to his word. Who is this Lord and why should I listen to him? I don't, I don't know him and I don't want to listen to him. The, the fact is, ever since the Garden of Eden, the world has been in opposition to God. And that opposition shows itself first and fundamentally by a refusal to listen to the sound of God's voice. It's not that God doesn't speak. God's been speaking since the very beginning. We, we hear his voice, and the scriptures tell us we hear it. We hear it through creation. As, as much of what can be known about God's power and his authority is just declared through the created world around us. He speaks more specifically through the scriptures, the, the revealed word of God. He speaks ultimately through Jesus Christ, the, the word of God made flesh. No, friends, God speaks and has been speaking, and continues to speak, it's that we don't want to listen. And this, this desire, this, this refusal to listen, is the very essence of rebellion, the very essence of sin. Not first wrong actions, though, though certainly wrong actions will come if we don't listen to God. But no, no, it starts before we do anything. It starts in our unwillingness to hear and to heed what God says. We are in our rebellion like little children who, who are putting their hands over their ears because they don't want to hear what mom and dad say. Or maybe a, a better image would be we're a bit like teenagers who put the earbuds in, right? Because they don't want to hear what mom and dad have to say. They'd rather just, you know, drown it out right? with, with whatever happens to be on their iPod. That's us. That's us. Refusing to listen, distracting ourselves, drowning out the voice of God. And it is this rebellion that is at the root of our alienation. All of our alienation. For, for when we become alienated from God, when we can no longer listen to his voice, when we can no longer receive his instruction, oh, alienation from everything else is sure to follow. Alienation from one another, because we no longer know how to love one another, because we don't know how to love God. Alienation from the world we live in, 
because we no longer know how to take care of that world because it's his world and we're alienated from him. So, so if you're here this morning and, and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you're not a follower of God, I, I want to just ask you, what, what would it look like for you to begin to listen to God or at least try to listen to him? You, you've spent your whole life up until this point, perhaps, with your hands over your ears or the earbuds in, listening to other things, drowning those other things out. Maybe, maybe you assume that, that, that God isn't speaking. Well, I want to suggest to you this morning that, that if there is a God, if he's really there, then we should expect him to speak. We should expect to be able to hear him. How could you begin to listen for the sound of God's voice? There's really not a lot of risk here, because if he's not there, you won't hear anything. But if he is there, how will you hear him? Let me let me suggest that the one place to start is just take the Bible that's in the pew or the chair right in front of you. We, we've got lots of Bibles around here. We understand that that the Bible is not just a, a human book, a, a record of, of other human beings, religious experiences. We understand that the Bible is actually the word of God, his words. It's it's his book. God is speaking through it. I, I'd love for you to just take one. You don't have to buy it from us. You don't have to replace it. If you don't have a Bible at home, please take the one in front of you and start reading it. I'd, I'd encourage you not to start with the book of Exodus, but, but start with the gospel of Mark. It's kind of in the middle of the Bible. It'll tell you about the life of Jesus. Just start reading it. If he's God, if he's really there, you should expect to hear him. You should expect that he'll speak through it. But in addition to needing to listen for God's voice, I think if we're going to hear him, we've also got to stop listening, right? We've got, we've got to stop listening to other voices. And I, I think that the primary voice that we need to be concerned about is our own. Because the fact is, as rebels, we've set ourselves up as God. We're, we're like Pharaoh. You know, this is what Michael says. I don't expect you to listen to that, but it's what I'm telling myself all the time. This is what I say. And that voice rings loud in my ears. Perhaps your voice rings loud in your ears. If we're going to hear God, we're going to have to stop listening to ourselves as if we are God. Now, this is hard because we like listening to ourselves. We, we like also listening to the false gods that we set up that are kind of projections of ourselves. We like listening to the idols of this world. Do you know why we like listening to ourselves? Why we like listening to idols? It's simply because they always tell us what we want to hear. False gods never cross your desires. False gods never tell you that there's, there's anything wrong with you that you can't fix. But if there really is a God, and if we're really going to hear his voice, we should actually expect that God to cross our thoughts, to cross our desires, to confront us with things that we don't like. 
Can you hear such a voice? You, you need to understand that your life depends on being able to hear such a voice. Now, as Christians, I think one of the things we have to realize from this passage is that since the world is opposed to God, things are going to get worse before they get better. You notice the order in this chapter, right? First, the first thing that happens is the promise comes. Moses shows up and says, hey, let my people go. Right? Right? Deliverance is coming. The, the, the dominion of the serpent king is being challenged. But instead of rolling over, the serpent king fights back. This world is not neutral. It, it is a hostile power. And, and we can see this right throughout the whole history of redemption. Right? Satan tempts Christ when? After his baptism. After God has publicly declared that this is my son whom I love. And that's when the temptation comes. When does Satan tempt Peter? After Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Then all of a sudden, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. When Peter says, oh yeah, but I don't want you to be that kind of Christ. Not a Christ who's going to die. It happens again. When, when does Satan sift Peter? It's after Jesus has prayed for him. As he's dying for him on the cross. Paul finds himself opposed in Ephesus after he exercises the demon from the girl. Now that Christ is seated on the throne, now, now that the victory is won, Satan rages against the church. This pattern shouldn't surprise us. The, the, the world, I think, we should expect is going to become more hostile, more opposed, that the persecution get more intense, not less, as the day of Jesus Christ approaches. Now, if that's true in history, we need to recognize it's true in our own lives as well. When we begin to resist sin and temptation in our own lives, when we begin to actively fight against sin, say no to the world, the world doesn't just roll over. Right? Sin and Satan are never passive, even though they may have been defeated by Christ at the cross. They are not at rest. They are not passive. So if sin has, has had its way in your life or in, in some area of your life, brothers and sisters, do not expect sin to give up without a fight. We, we should expect the addict to experience his fiercest temptation once he's decided to quit. We, we should expect the, the, the man or the woman who is given to fits of rage to be provoked specifically when he's decided he's going to put his anger to death. Right? We should expect the pop-up window to appear and pop up when we finally decided that we're, we're done with pornography. Spiritual warfare is real. There's nothing in our modern world that suggests that it is. But our modern world cannot see. It is blind to spiritual reality. 
Spiritual warfare is real. We should expect it. We should expect it to be personally directed, personally targeted. It will come as lies in opposition to God's word, his truth. It will come as false promises that tempt us away from the true promises of God in the gospel. We should expect it in the form of, of deceit in opposition to God's truth. We should expect it even in the form of assault in opposition to God's blessings. Spiritual warfare is real, believer. And honestly, when you're engaged in it, when you, when you feel it, when you realize that, that there's more going on in this world than meets the eye, it's one of the ways you know you are in the fight. It's one of the ways that you know that you are actually engaged. If you're here this morning and, and honestly you, you don't sense that there's a battle going on, you, you don't sense that there's a battle going on in your own life, you don't sense that there's a battle going on in this church, maybe it's because you're not in it. Not because it's not happening. And this becomes an opportunity for some, for some reevaluation. Things are going to get worse before they get better. The, the enemy is not going to just roll over. But that leads us second. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Because it is going to get better. Look in verse 19 of chapter 5. The Israelite foreman realized they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials have put a sword and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, Lord. Why have you brought trouble upon this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble upon this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians." I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and cruel bondage. Then the Lord said to Moses, go, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Since I speak with faltering lips. The discouragement of the Israelites is more than understandable. 
even more so is Moses' discouragement. There at the, at the end of chapter 5, he, he actually begins to wonder if God isn't playing some sort of cruel trick on all of them. But there's also a, a difference between Moses and his discouragement and the Israelites. And, and we don't want to miss the difference. The Israelites are so discouraged that by chapter 6, verse 9, they're, they're not even listening anymore. They no longer have ears to hear. They give up. They begin to blame God and blame his messenger. But Moses is different, and we need to see the difference. He's not different because he's not discouraged. Moses is incredibly discouraged. You see it at the beginning of the passage. You see it at the end of the passage. But he's different in what he does with it. He doesn't stop listening. And he doesn't stop talking. He takes his discouragement, which is oh so very real. And he takes it right to God. And he asks the question of faith. Why? Why haven't you acted yet, God? How long, O Lord, before you rescue us? Christian, do you see what Moses is doing here? You know, sometimes we throw the why question at God as an accusation. And in that instance, it's not a prayer of faith at all, because we've already made up our minds, right? We're asking God why, but we've already decided why. It's because you don't love me, God. It's because you're not faithful, God. It's because you're not powerful enough, God. It's because you're uninvolved, God. Yeah, that's not a prayer of faith. That's not what Moses is doing. Moses hasn't already made up his mind. Moses isn't accusing God. Instead, as you, as you look at his prayer there, you realize he is implicitly pleading God's honor, God's character, God's promises. And while it's kind of implicit here, this is something that Moses learns well, and it's going to become very explicit in future prayers that he prays. Friends, this is what we should do. We don't pretend that everything's okay. We don't, we don't pretend as if, as if the sorrows and the trials and the ongoing struggle with sin doesn't really bother us. It doesn't get us down. Everything's fine because Christians are always happy and victorious. No. That's not what we do. No, we take our suffering. We take our sorrow. We take our trials. We take our discouragement. And we take it to the Lord. And we ask him, how long? How long, O Lord? Because you are Lord. And we plead his name. And we plead his promises. And we plead his word back to him. And we ask for deliverance. And in asking, we demonstrate something very, very important. We demonstrate that our hope is in him. And without him, we have no hope. It is in him alone. Christians, that's what you do with your discouragement. That's what you do with your trials. That's what you do with your struggles. You do not hide them under the carpet. You do not pretend that they're not real. You do not hide in some false understanding that maturity, the mature Christian, is never discouraged. Now you take it. 
to the only place you can take it. And that's back to the Lord. And you give it to Him. And you plead His name. God's response to Moses shows, I think, that that's exactly what God was waiting for. It turns out that things getting worse before they get better, what wasn't a mistake. It wasn't, you know, the plan backfiring. It wasn't even merely the opposition of the enemy, though it was that, as we just talked about. To the contrary, God emphasizes that now... Now, things are finally where he wants them. It's kind of shocking when he he puts it that way. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Really, God? I mean, you couldn't have, like, gotten to that now point, oh, I don't know, like, 20 years earlier? Well, apparently not. Apparently not. No, now things are right where he wants them because now when all Hope appears lost. Now, when when it looks like it cannot get worse, because it can't, now is when everyone will see what the Lord will do for his people. It was part of God's plan all along that things be as bad as they got. It was part of God's plan all along for Moses and the people to, to get to an utter end of themselves before he did anything. It was part of God's plan all along that Pharaoh be incredibly confident that he had the upper hand. Because now, now when deliverance comes, it will be unmistakably clear that it is God's mighty hand and God's hand alone that is, that is bringing about the deliverance. And the result of that will be that both Pharaoh and Israel will know the Lord. They will know that God is the Lord. Pharaoh said, I don't know the Lord. Who's the Lord? Well, Pharaoh is about to meet him. And he's never going to forget him. But the point of this passage is not so much that Pharaoh is going to know the Lord. It's that Israel is finally going to come to know the Lord. It is that alienation of God's people from God that had to be overcome first. God, God makes it clear in, in the rest of chapter 6 that, that this is really what, what this, this whole situation is about. That, it, that it's about knowing him. Three times in these verses he declares, I am the Lord. Verse 2, verse 6, and verse 8. Those, those statements frame, beginning, middle, and end, all of what God has to say to Moses. And and what he says then is that I'm going to keep all those promises I made. I'm renewing the covenant that I made with Abraham, but I'm not just renewing it. I'm not just renewing the promise. I am now actually going to fulfill it. I'm going to keep the promise. And because of that, Israel is going to now know something about God that that the patriarchs did not know. They are going to know his name. They are going to know what it means that he is Yahweh, the, the Lord. If you, if you grew up with the King James uh, Bible, it would be translated Jehovah. It's the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. The, the patriarchs knew God as, as El Shaddai, as, 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 as God all-powerful, as the God who was sufficient and whose promises were sufficient for their faith. But Israel was about to know God as the God who fulfilled all of those promises. 
And the distinction is important. We know this in our own life. We all know people who talk big, but never deliver. God is about to display himself as the God who not only talks big, but who delivers big, who actually gets things done. Seven times in in these verses, Yahweh says, I will. I will bring you out. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my own. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land. I will give it to you. This is what it means that I am Yahweh. Not just the God who makes promises, but the God who delivers on those promises. The God who actually takes all of his power and puts it to work on behalf of his people. Keeping. Every single last promise. Friend, I wonder who you think God is. What kind of God do you think he is? Is, is, God, is God just a, a cop? A, a bully? A, a disapproving scold in your mind? Is God some sort of impersonal force? Or, or an uninvolved and distant creator? Friends, all of those ideas of God are wrong. This is who God is. This is who he wants to be known as. The Lord who displays his power and his compassion for his people to to rescue them and to make them his own. Now, now as a church, I think this means we've got to think carefully about our evangelism. What, What are we holding out to people in our evangelism? Are we simply holding out to people in the gospel a better life now, you know, better circumstances Believe in Jesus and your marriage will get better. Believe in Jesus and your kids will turn out okay. Believe in Jesus and you'll be happier at work. Believe in Jesus and and you'll be happier at home. Believe in Jesus and and, and maybe you'll get healed of your diseases or sicknesses. Friends, are we holding out the goodies? Are we doing what God does here and holding out God? And the promise of knowing this God. Perhaps it's no wonder that when the better life doesn't pan out, the products of our evangelism don't stick around. Because it wasn't knowing the Lord that brought them here in the first place. We want to be faithful in holding out God because it is knowing this God that is the gospel. Now, what we also need to see here, which I think is so significant, is, is, is where this comes and, and when it comes. This, this, this assurance, this incredibly strong statement of what God is going to do comes when the people of Israel have given up. They're not listening anymore. Their discouragement is, is utter. Christian, our assurance that things will get better. Our assurance that salvation will come really has nothing to do with us or our circumstances. And it has everything to do with God and his character, who he revealed himself to be at the cross. The God who acts in history to deliver his people. Friends, God wants his sons and daughters to know what kind of father they have. He wants The world to know that the world's contradiction of his promises and his love 
will not stand. And therefore things get worse first. It's why he actually brings the trouble into our life first. It's why he acts while we are yet his enemies. It's why he acts on behalf of Israel here, even though they've, they've given up. God brings trouble into our lives in order to bring us to an end of ourselves, to teach us that we have no hope other than him. And friends, he will not act when it appears that salvation is coming any other way. He will not act when it looks like the deliverance is coming with our help, with our aid, according to our wisdom. God will not share his glory with another. Now, God says, you will see that only now, only now when it's clear that you have nothing else to depend upon. Which means that if you're here this morning and you don't know God, that you want to find him. Know that it is only when you come to an end of yourself that you will find God. That's where God is. God is just that one step beyond the end of you. He's not there in your strengths. He's not there in your virtues. He's not there in your wisdom. No, it's only when you come to an end of yourself that you finally find him. For God's purpose in our rescue is the same as his purpose in our trials. And that is that he would be known as the God who delivers those who have no other hope but whose hope is in him alone. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But don't be discouraged because it is going to get better. And finally, you'll never believe how. Look in verse 13 of chapter 6. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. Now, skip on down to verse 26. Actually, the end of verse 25. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Flip back to verse 12. In verse 12, as Moses says, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? I mean, you can hear the note of failure. You can hear Moses' discouragement. No one is listening to Moses, not Pharaoh, not Israel. And it feels like the whole thing is over before it's even begun. And then we get a genealogy. Of course, because that's what you would expect, you know. I mean, uh, the novel I was reading just last night, right? Just uh, all of a sudden dropped into a genealogy. No, of course not. We don't. We don't do genealogies, and, that, and that's why this feels so strange here. But this genealogy is serving a very important purpose. This genealogy kind of dropped in right here with Moses so discouraged. Is highlighting. What an unlikely savior 
Moses is. You see, if, if, if you lived in the ancient Near East and, and, and you're following along in this story and, and you're thinking about a savior that's going to come and you've just seen Moses' failure, you would say, well, of course, because who's Moses? No, what, what, what we would expect to see is, you know, a firstborn son who's going to come and strongly deliver the people of Israel because firstborns were the best. And I don't say that just because I'm a firstborn. That's just that's just the way that the culture worked in the ancient Near East. Right. Firstborns got all the honor. Firstborns got everything. Firstborns did everything. And so and so we're dropping into this genealogy and, and you're expecting a firstborn. And so, of course, we start with the firstborn of Jacob. Reuben. No, he's not from Reuben's clan. Or, or, or maybe you'd expect somebody, you know, from Joseph's clan. Right. Because Joseph is the hero at the end of Genesis. And so you kind of expect Joseph or at least his descendants to make a big comeback. Right. And, and, and solve everything. We don't even get to Joseph. Maybe if you were reading carefully at the end of Genesis, you'd, you'd expect a, a savior to come from Judah's clan. Because we know that ultimately that is where the Savior would come from. But Judah's Judas day has not yet come. Not yet. No, no instead, as, as the genealogy plays out, we find ourselves kind of meandering through this gene, genealogy until we get to this really obscure corner of Moses and Aaron. Moses is even a firstborn son of his own father. Right. Moses is the second born of the first born of the second born of the third born son of Jacob. So you see what's going on here. Add to the murder of chapter two, the reluctance of chapter four, the failure of chapter five. Now we have the added ignominy of the obscurity of chapter six. What an unlikely savior. And yet that's the point that verses 26 and 27 make right after the genealogy. Not once, but twice. Unlikely though he seems, discouraged though he feels, ignored and rejected as he is, it is this same Moses and Aaron that God uses to bring Israel out of Egypt. Friends, God delights to keep his promises And he delights to keep his promises through the apparent weakness and obscurity of an unlikely savior. And that, that truth that that we'll see, if if we kept reading through the Old Testament, we would see it repeated again and again and again. That truth finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God keeps his promise of salvation. He does it. At the moment of our utmost extremity, when we are dead in sins, when we are not looking for salvation at all, he does it to the unlikely person of a poor, obscure, apparently illegitimate child born to peasants in an obscure corner of the world who was rejected by his own people. And put to a shameful death on a Roman cross. But friends, it is this same Jesus through whom the Lord brings about deliverance. Through whom the Lord 
rescues his people out of slavery, not to a foreign country, but out of slavery to sin and to death. As we, as we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross for us. Friends, make no mistake. This Jesus and no other Jesus is the one God uses to rescue us. And though it seems incredibly unlikely, when we understand the ways of God, we begin to understand why. Because it is the very unlikeliness of Jesus that makes sure that all the glory goes to the Lord where it belongs. And none of it goes to us. Here's the solution to our alienation. Not better working conditions, not better social conditions, not better circumstances of any kind. But faith in God's promises to us through Jesus Christ. Through faith, we become God's people. Through faith in Christ, God becomes our God. Not just the God who makes promises, but the God who acts in history to keep those promises. And in keeping them, reveals his name. This is what the New Testament tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Given, given the chapter that we've just looked at, given especially what God said in Exodus chapter 6, I want you to listen to what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yahweh. The Lord who acts in history to deliver his people to the glory of God the Father. This same Jesus and none other. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice in your word. We pray that you would allow us in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of trials. In the midst of our own fallenness and weakness. To hear what you are saying to us in Jesus Christ. To hear that you have acted to deliver us from sin and Satan, and death. O oh Lord, allow us, allow us to know what that means, to take our bearings from it, to live in hope. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.